The Real Chemistry Podcast connects the dots between our guests and the innovative work they do to show up and shape the future of healthcare. Why? So you, the listener, are encouraged to join us on our relentless pursuit to make the world a healthier place for all. Some may call it idealism. We call it real chemistry. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of Real Chemistry and the host of the Real Chemistry Podcast Show. And today I am going to do a fun interview, a smart and uh, needed interview with my colleague, Mary Stutz. Mary is uh, a longtime client of the firm, and we did do a podcast with her. I believe it was late last year, so I encourage you to look up that episode. But Mary is our new Global Chief Inclusion and Health Equity Officer uh, after spending time at most recently Samita Vant, Stanford Health, Bayer, Genentech, United Health, Comcast, you name it. She's been at a, you know, the, the gold standard at a lot of different companies. Um, she's told us stories about uh, organizations she started like T-Cell. Uh, she's talked about her childhood, growing up as a foster child, some of her battles with uh, being a black mother and dealing with some of the health inequities in hospitals. Today, we're going to talk about her new organization. And not surprising, it rallies around this sort of whole uh, global inclusivity and health equity uh, mantra, both internally and externally. We'll also talk a little bit about the real Health Equity Summit, which is going to come up next January around JP Morgan. And we'll get a few other fun facts from Mary. So please stay tuned and listen in. All right. Well, Mary, here we go again. Uh, ironically, this time we are colleagues. Last time we did the interview, you are still the SVP uh, at Samita Vant and our client. Uh, so it only feels right that we've come full circle. And the other ironical thing is, is that you and I are sitting about 200 feet apart. But thanks to technology and the fact that we did not have our external mics today, we're doing this on Zoom, even though you and I are both in our San Francisco office today. So first of all, thank you for being willing to do this a second time. You're one of, I think, three or four people that uh, we've ever done a second interview with. So you're in Hi. some uh, rare, rare company. Um we have talked a lot about your background. You know, you had an amazing sort of story about your childhood going through foster care and how, you know, from an early age, you knew how to use your voice. Uh, we talked about T-Cell and, you know, the amazing mentorship you're doing, all the great experience you've had at companies like United Healthcare and Bayer and Genentech, et cetera. Um, so today, what I really wanted to talk about is your new role as the Global Chief Inclusion and Health Equity Officer of Real Chemistry. We chose specifically not to just go the DE&I route, although people will see that DE&I sits squarely in your organization. And I do want to dig into it because you've you've only been here for a little over a month, but you've really done a lot of thinking. And I think as you and I were doing a little prep uh, before this, you've drawn upon all of the years that you've worked in the healthcare and technology industry to come up with this plan, this organization, these things that we're bringing to bear. So I want people to know, like, while I want them to know about the amazing things we're doing here, we also, they can know that you see this as a blueprint for what we can do with our clients, what we, what other companies can do. So we're doing this in the spirit of sharing, not just to shine a light on the amazing work you're doing. So with that, why don't we start with what this new organization looks like 
and what some of the components of it are. I know you sent around a very eloquent memo uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I'd love to sort of dig into that a little bit, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Aaron, for this opportunity to talk about, um, you know, my passion. I love this work. And as you said, I have done it in different corporations, starting with Kaiser Permanente years ago, um, where we were really pioneers in the whole kind of diversity movement. And then on to Bayer and Genentech and United Health Group and Bristol Myers Squibb um, and then Stanford Healthcare. Um, as well, where I was their chief inclusion, uh, diversity and health equity officer. And then um, just before that, actually, with Comcast NBC Universal. So looking at it from uh, the perspective of access even to things like broadband, not just healthcare, because the equity piece is huge. And it covers so many spheres, so many, um, you know, industries and professions and lifestyles. Uh, so that that all excites me. And so coming to real chemistry to me is this opportunity to kind of bring it all together. I was very pleased and it was definitely a deciding factor for me to when I realized that real chemistry had set up inclusion, diversity and health equity as one of its five pillars of the organization and and the core fabric of who real chemistry is, um, including the technology, uh, the data analytics, the creative pieces, the communications uh, pieces, and then the inclusion, diversity, and health equity. And to me, that is so exciting because you know, it means that we really understand, not just for us companies, but for our clients and for society overall, for anybody to be really successful, these components have to be integrated across everything that you do. So this whole evolving the way that we operate in real time by integrating inclusion and health equity specifically into every aspect of our work is really going to help us power this whole obsession that, that I think everybody here has of making the world a healthier place for all from local to global. And the point, the reason why I am specifically doubling down on the inclusion and health equity piece is because most companies stop at diversity. So they, they um, you know, hire a diverse workforce and then they stop there as if they have achieved everything and it's kind of a check the box without ever going back to understand so many things about that diversity. It's, it's understanding what is the employee experience, um, how is it impacting your company, making you a better company, a more productive company, um, you know, a more customer-centric or patient-centric company. If you're not looking at that, then you still are not receiving all the benefits of recruiting a diverse workforce. And then as an industry, as a company, as an organization, what are you doing to make sure that the equity is there? Not just the equity for your employees, but the equity in society overall. So th this is the need and you really have to incorporate across everything. So that's our vision here. Um, it, it's that we are looking at inclusion and health equity across these three pillars. And the pillars are, you know, the corporate pillar uh, for our clients and, and customers. So that there's that corporate pillar that is, you know, your workforce. 
It is your corporate needs. It's things like your ESG, environmental, social, and governance, which your investor relations and, uh, you know, your board, the directors, and, and all of these, and financial institutions are looking at that accountability. It's your supplier diversity. Um, it's your workforce. It's your leadership development. It's your uh, affinity groups. And are you maximizing them to help you grow your business? Because that's really a goal for them. They're not about food festivals and fun, right? There is a real business case for the business resource groups. Everybody calls them something different, the affinity groups, business resource groups, employee resource groups, but there is really a strategic value for them. So there's that corporate piece of making sure that folks understand that and and, uh, all of the pieces that go with that. And then there is what I call kind of the core business certainly for us as a healthcare organization. So this goes all the way from the bench, meaning your scientific research, uh, because remember, our, our ultimate goal in healthcare is precision uh, medicine, predictive uh, analytics and medicine, personalized healthcare. So that cannot happen if we don't have that level of diversity and inclusion at the research level. So things like diversifying the human genome database is huge. Um, when I worked at Genentech, we started with just trying to diversify clinical trials which is still an ongoing effort for the industry. But now that has evolved to diversifying the human genome database because this, this um, you know, our gold standard and that we're trying to achieve, certainly that um, the frontline academic institutions like Stanford and the UC systems and, and all of these organizations are trying to achieve is this whole concept of precision health. And that's not going to help happen if the human genome database is not diversified. And right now, last I heard, it was only like 19% diversified, and the majority of that 19% was Asian. So we have a lot of work to do there. So starting with the bench, which is the science, all the way through the development, the clinical operations, the clinical trials, through the FDA approval all the way to commercialization, uh, to launch and beyond. So there are DNI, uh, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion components. There are health inequities at every stage of that work. So there's so much that needs to be done throughout that whole sphere. And then there is what I kind of call the external, but it's your health equity, it's your social impact work. Some people call it corporate social responsibility. The ESG work is also somewhat a part of that as well. But there's that piece. So what are we doing with public-private partnerships, with policymakers, with regulatory bodies? Uh, What are we doing with the workforce of the future and the customers and the patients of the future? Um, So all of those pieces, so those are kind of our three pillars, right? The corporate, the core business, and then the health equity, um, which is the social impact work. So those three, but then across all of that, we have the need to incorporate or integrate the um, the data analytics. And this piece is critical for us to be successful because I always say we need meaningful metrics. So we have a lot of the same standard kind of metrics, 
that we look at. But there, to me, what I'm so excited about also about real chemistry is the fact that, um, you know, we've built out this amazing data analytics and technology capabilities, um, our data intelligence capabilities. And, you know, quite frankly, I remember years ago, I've been a client of real chemistry at all the companies where I've worked for over 20 years. And I remember in the industry, we kind of all thought Jim was, you know, a little crazy, quite frankly, when he bought Bob Pearson's <laughs> company, you know, and merged with him and added all this data analytics capability. But looking back at it now, how prescient was it that when everyone now is trying to get on board with the digital capabilities and analytics, we're already there. We already have that capability. We've already come up with some amazing data that's very insightful to help our clients and I think to help the industry tackle so many of these things, not only the diseases and the unmet medical needs, but again, the health inequities that are still plaguing us after all of these years. And so the capability of AI and machine learning and digital analytics to really help inform and influence all of this work that we're doing is incredible. So we want to make sure that we are taking advantage of that. So we're looking at data from the perspective of, you know, the commercial applications and addressing these opportunities to make the algorithms or the data-driven approaches to targeting and engaging with our patients and consumer audiences, you know, more inclusive. But then there's also the clinical applications. And I would say throughout all of these, driving out the bias that is in all of these, uh, you know, these areas, because that's leading to the inequity. And then the clinical application. So again, addressing that potential bias in even things like site selection, because we work with a lot of vendors who have their same sites that they select. Um, you know, we do so much where we, uh, patients, especially when you look at clinical trial recruitment, where they have to go to an academic medical institution. Well, that's not always, that's not only is it not always the best thing, it's not necessary. We have enough technology and capabilities that we can really decentralize uh, clinical trials and a lot of our clinical operations. And some organizations are doing pilots in that way now. But, but also looking at things like your investigator criteria, your protocols, uh, providing those conclusive measures so that you're enrolling underrepresented populations and uh, keeping them in the trials. But then also there's a huge piece that we haven't looked at as much as we should, and that has to do with provider applications. So addressing these opportunities to improve the quality of care, the patient experience, patient reported outcomes, uh, using uh, you know, the healthcare providers, patient records and, and health data. But the other piece of that also, and I'll come back to some of these, but the other pieces of this also, one critical piece is this whole concept of relevance, right? And that's something that Real Chemistry came up with a few years ago, and it has just been so amazing to see all of this research around and the capability to help clients and customers in the industry overall understand the impact of relevance and, you know, addressing the opportunities to make the algorithms or the data-driven approaches to targeting and engaging with, with people and consumers more inclusive and in helping the businesses to understand why these things are relevant and what, what, how, are, how is their company 
being perceived as far as relevance is concerned across, again, not just the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, but across their whole business and, and how they're showing up um, in the marketplace and in society and with these patient groups and all the other stakeholders. So that's kind of our core, um, you know, focus as we are building out the program right now. And, and I am just so excited about all the work. Well, I love it. And, and you know, what I think is great is we had some good foundational building blocks, right? Some of the members of your team, like mm -hmm. Marcia Windross, Joel Jones, Abby Hayes, right? Who all are playing leadership roles in this new org underneath your guidance. But the idea of bringing this all together and really, you know, I, I've loved and you and I have worked together for several years now, starting at Comcast and, and through that you understand the importance of that data and analytics because, you know, you can't fix what you can't measure, right? Or if you can't identify the problem. And I think you spoke to a lot of those important pieces that people do see or are starting to see more of the health equity issue when it comes to access, but they forget yeah. about sort of the early phases of that, right? And if it doesn't start at the bench piece, the research, mm -hmm. the clinical trial development, you know, even how you set up the study in the first place, then that leaves you quite mm -hmm. flat-footed. I guess one of the things I would love to just drill down on is I think a lot of companies have started to take an inward look. Probably not as many have the service that we do where we are helping other clients. Right. Are we finding a lot of uptake? Like I would think that people would want the help of experts like you and Jewel and Abby in particular, you know, who have worked in the industry, you know a lot of the issues and to your point, you know, really understand it from a whole drug development perspective. What, what's that experience been like so far? Yeah, that experience has been amazing. All of our clients are, are super interested in this. And, you know, just, just as so many companies are, uh, the companies are so siloed. And so the employees themselves are working in, you either have, you know, the commercial folks who are focusing on marketing and commercialization, or you have the people focusing on the clinical, or you have the people focusing on the corporate pieces of work. And the challenge with that is we have the opportunity to show them how to integrate all of those things and to understand how one piece impacts the other, right? So for example, we were working with one client who was sharing, the CEO was sharing with me about the challenges with their therapy. And the fact that, um, you know, with, in this case, sickle cell anemia, and here you have a therapy that has been, has gone through uh, the clinical trial and recruited the trial, got the trials done, um, worked with the FDA, got it approved, got priority review to expedite it, got it launched in, into the marketplace, only to find out that providers are not prescribing it because they're not staying up on the latest because it's kind of considered like a rare disease. Plus, at the end of the day, there is, sad to say, but, you know, there is kind of this institutional racism where providers, especially when you talk about, quite frankly, we found this research even when I was at Genentech, that providers, especially specialists, you see most people think people of color only go to physicians of color. That's not true because there are not that many physicians of color who are specialists. So you look at someone who has sickle cell, they have to go to hematologists. 
And so if the hematologist is not on top of the latest uh, drug developed for a disease like sickle cell, and because people are in so much pain and they're in the past, there wasn't much you could do for them. So the only thing you could do was give them pain meds and some clinical solutions. And there are so many that are still doing that and not staying on top of the, uh, the latest research and technology and advancements. So that impacts the whole company all the way through. So you have to bring all of these stakeholders along. You have to communicate all the way along about and identify the biases, the issues, the setbacks as you're moving all the way through so that you're anticipating, you know, predictive analytics. I just think there's so much potential there to look at the data, look at the research and predict where those gaps or problems or challenges are going to be, and then address them in advance so that you're not now in the marketplace, uh, not getting the results that you want. And that's just one example. But um, when we talk to our clients about this and explain about this, when we talk to them uh, when it comes to things like health equity and being a better corporate citizen in, in your communities where you live and work and building these relationships and being seen addressing uh, you know, social injustice and impact. Um, so helping them, helping the clients to understand, you know, you really, if you're looking to build these relationships with diverse populations, whether you're trying to hire them or recruit them for your uh, therapies or do supplier diversity or have uh, multi-ethnic partnerships, you have a huge core diverse population working in your company uh, in probably members of your affinity groups, your employee resource groups, leverage those groups. And so we have a whole strategy around working with standing up, building, growing out, um, and leveraging your employee resource groups to help you with so many things, not just your, your core business, but even your culture and your workforce. And, uh, you know, some of the biggest, as, as the work I've done, some of the biggest complaints that diverse employees have is that they're not being developed. They're, so when you define inclusion, it's do I feel valued? celebrate it, respect it, and then these last two, have access to the same opportunities as everyone else, and I'm being treated the same or fairly as everyone else. Those last two is where we see the bulk of the diverse employees saying, no, that, you know, I do not feel uh, value or, you know, included. I am not getting access to the same opportunities. I am not being treated fairly. So, uh, when you work with your um, employee resource groups, you have an opportunity to work with diverse employees, give them access to development programs, give them access to the leaders of the organization, uh, because people will say things like, the leader doesn't even know my name. Well, it's, it's not reasonable to think that every leader would know the name of every employee, especially as you have huge companies. But what they're really saying is that I don't have access to leaders. I'm never in a room with leaders. These are things where you're, and so they don't feel valued and that they have access or, in, you know, and have the, are being treated the same. And so to work through the affinity groups and have your leaders come in and do fireside chats and do mentoring sessions and, you know, all of these things, but build out a really strong strategic um, 
program as a part of your corporate uh, employee engagement work, that's a huge opportunity. And you then can connect that because another thing that employees really want to do is be involved in the community. They want to represent their company in the communities where they live and work. And they want those communities to see that I work at a company that is socially involved. And as the workforce uh, evolves and the millennials and the Gen Z come into the workforce, they really are not going to work for a company that's not socially engaged and involved. So then again, you work through those BRGs and you can have them participate in a lot of your community health equity initiatives. And uh, that is something that the American Hospital Association has asked all of its members to incorporate health equity into their inclusion and diversity um, and health equity programs. And uh, as part of kind of like their corporate social responsibility or social impact, it's certainly for those publicly traded companies uh, is the key part of your uh, ESG work that you are having to report um, you know, from a financial and, and corporate citizenship accountability. So th this is something that they wouldn't know that because it's so siloed in so many companies. So we're bringing a lot of that knowledge and expertise and actually strategies and ways to do that, along with these uh, very powerful um, data analytics capabilities and technology to be able to, to measure it and come up with more meaningful metrics. So you just shared a lot and a lot of very valuable information. I know, I'm sure there are people listening and saying, I would love to get access to this. <clears throat> Maybe I need to build the case, you know, with my boss, or I don't even really know where to get started. So without this sounding like an infomercial, the good news is we have some steps that we're taking as a company to help bring people along. And for those that do want to be educated and learn more about the process, um, they can do that. And so really what I'd love to do is foreshadow a couple of upcoming things that we've got going on, right? So the first is something that I know you and Jim Weiss, our CEO, have gotten excited about. We'll be helping on this front, but uh, launching something that we're calling, it's our inaugural, the Real Health Equity uh, Summit. And we'll do that yeah. around JP Morgan in January. It's going to be, as you said, the Davos of health equity, yeah. which will be exciting. Let's talk a little bit about what the, the vision behind that is beyond being the Davos of health equity. And then I'd like to talk about the interview series that we'll also be doing leading up to that after we cover off on that one. Yeah. So the whole, the whole um, rationale behind this is the fact that we need inclusive innovation quite frankly, that's going to be critical to making the world a healthier place for all, which is the goal and objective of so many different uh, stakeholders in our industry and in society. And so as I've been talking to um, my peers, and I've been working on this, you know, for a long time, even before coming to real chemistry, as far as working on it from the perspective of participating in convenings and drawing attention to the not only what's being done, but the tremendous amount of work that needs to be done and the new approaches that we need to take to doing it. And the fact that we've got to blow ourselves out of tradition if we're really gonna be serious about addressing and making a big impact with health uh, equity and truly making it a more equitable place for everybody to drive out these inequities. So what we're doing is for JP Morgan 2022, we are assembling an inclusive group of what I call great minds across the system, not just the healthcare system, but also non-industry folks as well. So a lot of companies are, have appointed heads of health equity 
equity now. They've appointed ESG leaders. And of course, there are chief diversity officers. Um, we're bringing together community leaders, policymakers, academics, technology experts, and more to discuss the real barriers and the real opportunities and the real solutions to achieving health equity. And, you know, there are some things that we've tiptoed around and uh, we have we've, we've tried to um, not have to address for whatever reasons, you know, just I don't know if it was because people thought that there was nothing that could be done about it or that it was kind of like sacred territory, don't talk about it or whatever. But at the end of the day, we must go deeper. The truth of the matter is, you know, when you give this advice to companies, for example, about how to do more uh, inclusive clinical trials and uh, that kind of thing. And then they take all this information and they're excited, but then they turn the trials over to a CRO and the, C the contract research organization. And then those CROs, unfortunately, have their templated approach right. to how they do clinical trials. They have their regular sites that they go to to do the work they only want to work with academic institutions. So this whole concept, this is just one example, but this whole concept of decentralizing clinical trials is huge. There is so much that can be unpacked with this and done in a new and more innovative way. We can use the AI technology and uh, you know machine learning and predictive analytics all of these things way more than what we're doing uh, to get to people. You look at the lessons from Operation Warp Speed. Um, they did that. You know, they did decentralize uh, clinical trials. They did uh, have a, a different approach to how they did education and the invitation to participate. They made sure that there were diverse voices. Our own, real chemistry's own relevance data. Uh, if you look at some of that, the Newhouse study that we just did very clearly indicates that people want to hear from people who look like them and they want them to be experts and they want them to be scientists and all that, but they want them to look like them, people they can relate to. It's human nature to trust people who are more like you. And they did that with Operation Warp Speed. So the education was happening that way pointing people to the CDC, um, the, the people who gave the invitation to participate, even the trial protocols and things like that, that have just been so cookie cutter at other, you know, at the way it's being done now. So you have the people who are the ones who are coordinating trials and enrolling people in the trials. Uh, you know, they may have things like body mass as an indicator and so you might see someone who may be of more ethnic heritage who might have a heavier body mass than the traditional people who participate in clinical trials, which, by the way, are white males. And so they will immediately write them off without even doing the more necessary research of whether actual research and testing as to whether they really are true candidates to be in the trial. We're also looking at, as I said, people think that you have to um, bring in more diverse providers if you want to get access to diverse patients. Well, the bigger issue is that, as I said earlier, the patients are going to non-diverse specialists because that's where they, they're not diverse. Right. The challenge is that those specialists are not inviting the diverse patients to participate in the trial. 
clinical trials are gold standard. Uh, they are the best care that you can get, and it's primarily white men who are getting the advantage uh, to those. And so uh, look at, you know, we've got to call these things out because that's what's happening. And it is true that diverse um, providers do tend to have more diverse patients, but diverse providers are not being invited to participate in clinical trials because the bulk of the trials are being recruited at academic medical centers and the research shows that the faculty there is primarily white male again and the uh, people of color and women uh, to a certain extent, whether they're women of color or not, who are recruited there a lot of times don't stay because the environment and the culture is right. not inclusive. And so you have to move out of these and do your trials in different places, do your research in different places where you are getting uh, more access and you do need to make a conscientious effort to work with more diverse providers. Now you also, there is a huge effort that needs to take place with recruiting the pipeline as well and starting earlier so that you have uh, this pipeline of diverse people. Uh, and my last point about this, is when you talk about the kinds of research and data we'll be bringing and talking about and issues and ways to address them, the AAMC, the American Association of Academic Medical Centers, um, just released a study last year that found that physicians who provide the most culturally competent care, because that is another issue, uh, you know, when people show up at the hospital, uh, they're treated poorly uh, and, and they're not culturally respected. And so it's a it's a terrible patient experience. And then you find they're not having the good outcomes, like the whole maternal and infant morbidity, high rates with African-American women, highest of all. Uh, but, you know, so you have all of these challenges um, when you are trying to get this work done. And so we need to bring in the, the AAMC data showed that physicians who did their um, residencies, their medical school training at hospitals affiliated with historically Black colleges and universities actually provide more competent care, uh, culturally relevant care, sorry, they provide more culturally appropriate and relevant care than physicians who do not. Um, uh, get their education there. So these are the kinds of things that we want to bring to attention and companies and our industry needs to recognize and they need to find ways to, to work around and to address uh, these issues if we're really going to make some progress. But you're not going to make the progress if you don't just call it what it is and identify the true systemic barriers that are there and come up with some truly different and innovative ways um, to approach it. And that's why this is going to be an amazing convening uh, that we're doing at JP Morgan. And it's a kind of a, a, a call to action across the industry and other industries like the tech industry, consumer industries. Um, and, and let's talk this through and see how we can partner and come up with some real solutions. Well, it makes sense. I mean, it's, and I love the innovative approach uh, there's a saying that, you know, if you keep doing the same things the same ways, you can't expect a different outcome, right? That's the definition of That's insanity. Right. So I like the idea of really thinking through the whole process. And just as a tease to that, because um, I will say for the interest of time, we are going to do a series of interviews 
with some of yes. the speakers and some of these leaders that Mary and I will work on. So keep your eyes open for that. I think LinkedIn Live is where we're going to be targeting, well, but you. we'll make sure everyone knows yeah. about them. I do have two final questions I like to ask, and one's a little more serious, but more personal, and the other one's a little more fun, right? So because we already did our first, I think at that point it was the What to Know podcast, now the Real Chemistry podcast. We found out about your Deserted Island Island uh, album, and we also found out about where you were going to go after the pandemic, right, to Cabo. Um, but I yeah. think we wanted to ask this time around, which I have been also including recently, which is if you had one wish, what would it be and why? Wow. If I had one wish, what would it be and why? Um, uh, quite frankly, my one wish would be that uh, there, there really is and that maybe we'll get to it, but that there really will be a true, um, you know, health equity convening at Davos um, that has real people working at the levels that are frontline, really addressing, um, you know, the issues and bringing their creativity, their experiences, their ideas, and elevate this to such just a much higher level uh, than what has ever happened. I mean, to me, that would just be amazing to to see that happen because that's the only way that we're going to get the real change that needs to happen is um, when it's on a global stage. Again, not only identifying the true, real, real, real issues and barriers and, and patient experience and so forth, but the true types of innovation that needs to happen to bust out of these uh, traditions and, and uh, check the box approaches to how we're providing uh, healthcare. Well, this will be a great inspiration for them. We'll also continue that theme through South by Southwest, which we know next year in yeah. March, we are also going to focus on health equity. So uh, it's going to be a theme. Um, it's a movement, not a moment, right? As uh, we That's like to right. say. <laughs> Um, so stay tuned for that. And then the last question, which is more fun. And, and because we've already found out Carol King Tapestry was your deserted island album, I decided to ask yeah. you a different question, which is who during the pandemic have you discovered or maybe rediscovered that's provided inspiration for you during these crazy last 16, 17 months? Fantastic Negrito. Oh, I like that yeah. one. You, do you know them? Have you, you heard you, their music? You know why I do? Um, this will bring this all full circle is there is an artist and her name is ZZ Ward. And I had her on early days of the podcast when we were still doing more just broader innovation themes. We've landed more on the health innovation. She did a collab with Fantastic Negrito. And so I know, you know, of them for that that reason. So what a great, uh, great addition to the show. Yeah, that is. Um, so I found out about them through the son of a family friend who is there, he became their keyboardist. And it's so ironic because the dad used to always complain when the son was practicing and learning to become a musician, you know, as a preteen, you know how that noise, it's noise. And, uh, and so he, they were just so amazed. And the dad even said, just before he got signed with Fantastic Negrito, he said, you know, it used to be when my son would go in and practice the keyboard, I would uh, shut the door, you know. He said, but now... When he goes in there, I turn down the TV because I want to hear him. So that's just is how much he progressed. His name is Brian Simmons, and he's been their keyboardist. And they just keep 
winning Grammys. They won a Grammy in 2017 for their last days of Oakland. Uh, 2019, Please Don't Be Dead. And then 2020, Have You Lost Your Mind Yet? And uh, they're, they're a blend of blues and R&B and what they call roots music, which you and I know is folk music. Um, but it's such a unique sound. I'm just amazed at how they've They've come up with this blend, um, and I love that kind of thing, and that's exactly what we're wanting to do, right? Just like I was amazed with how Jim came up with that blend of the data with the agency, and, you know, that's what we want to do uh, with health equity is just blend all these, these genres, these pieces, and make something beautiful and effective, and that is so appreciative and beneficial to so many people. That's the goal. Well, so what a perfect uh, way to end it with such a perfect band that represents all the things that we're trying to do. Um, with that, I will wrap up. This is Aaron Strout. I'm the CMO of Real Chemistry and the host of the Real Chemistry podcast show. And you've had a chance for the second time to get to know uh, our new global chief inclusion and health equity officer, Mary Stutz, longtime friend of the firm, uh, client, wonderful person. So thank you, Mary, so much for taking the time to do this today. You are welcome. I look forward to our LinkedIn Live series. I do too. Thanks, everyone. Want more episodes of the Real Chemistry Podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Stitcher app, or iHeartRadio via the Health Podcast Network. Go to realchemistry.com for more info.